So let me ask you to use your imagination for a moment or two. More than a moment or two, maybe. Imagine that when you were a child, and some of you may still be children, so this will be easy for you. Imagine when you were a child, you're outside playing. Maybe you're in your room playing, if that was more typical for you, the place you like to play and just be a kid. And you hear your mom's voice calling you. Does everybody have that in your mind? The sound of your mother's voice calling you from somewhere. You can't see her, but you can hear her. And of course you know it's your mom. Now, imagine you go to your mom and you see her face. I don't know at what age you're imagining right now and what your mom looked like and what her hairstyle was like then or, you know, glasses or those sort of things, but you've got that picture in your mind, right? Your mom and you when you're a child. Now, let's take a step with our imagination and imagine you go from that scene that I just painted in your home with you playing in your bedroom or outside, and maybe it's you and your mom at that same period in your life, and you're getting on a boat. You're getting on a boat to go out in the ocean. And for whatever reason, we're using our imaginations here, right? There's no one else in your family is with you. It's just you and your mom. And you're getting on this boat with a couple other people you don't know, but, you know, people have their sun hats on and are applying sunscreen, and somebody's talking about, I hope I don't get seasick. And you're like, I'm getting out on a boat to go in the ocean. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but remember, we're using our imaginations. So you're getting on a boat to go out on the ocean, and, uh, you know, it's beautiful, and it's not too hot, it's not too cool, the sun is shining, there's some shaded spots on the boat, it's kind of, you know, not too big of a boat, an excursion boat, and, you know, you're going to some island somewhere to see something, just off the coast, not too far, but you're like, well, what about those storm clouds over there? And, you know, as you get closer to the island, you can see the island coming on the horizon. Oh, there's our goal. We're almost there. But the storm clouds are coming in faster, and the boat starts to do this business. And you're with your mom, of course. So you're a kid, of course. So you look at your mom, and you're like, Mom, what about this? And your mom's like, oh, the captain knows. You know, we just came from there, and we're just going to here. It'll be okay, honey. But instinctively, you hold on a little tighter to your mom. Instead of roaming around the boat looking at things, you want to be right beside her. Now imagine, before you get there, a storm does come up. Crazy, fast, furious. You're afraid for your life, holding on to the side of the boat, holding on to your mom, and you finally get there. I don't know about you, picturing things like that in my mind just gives me the willies just thinking about it. Anything bad happening to my mom, anything bad happening to me, even though that was just imagination. Now, the reason I had you do that was two, really. One, I wanted you to use your imaginations just to kind of get them primed up and warmed up here because where we're going next. But two was this idea of perspective, that for you, it's not a problem to imagine the world from your perspective because you are you. And you lived that perspective when you were a child, whatever age you settled on when I asked you to start down this little journey of imagination with me, that you remember what it was like to be a child that age. You remember what your mother sounded like and looked like, and you remember things from your childhood. So that perspective is not hard for you. But where we're going today in our sermon on the road to the cross, you're going to need to use your imagination a little bit, and I'm going to ask you to use your perspective a little bit. We could have shown you a movie or clips of a movie 
to try to help you envision this that we're going to see portrayed in God's Word today. We've enacted it even in our own building. For those of you that don't know, we do an Easter play this day of resurrection, and we have a short scene that depicts what we're going to talk about from Scripture today. But we need to take our minds beyond what happens right here on our stage. We need to take our minds beyond what might be pictured Um, in uh, a movie, and we need to take our minds to Scripture and ask God by the Holy Spirit, would He help us to see things that we don't see already? So that's why I asked you to consider and use your imagination and now take a step along the way, multiple steps with perspective. We've got our Scripture Memory Verse of the Month. And our Scripture Memory Verse of the Month is the very last verse of our passage of Scripture today. And let's read that together. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up His clothes by casting lots. Luke 23, 34. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we hear this scripture verse that's on the screen now, and most of us know where that's coming from. And we're heartened and horrified as to what we'll see today. And I just asked us to use our imagination and consider perspective, and we're a little confused and concerned about that too. But here we are, Father, gathered together with believers in your name, with your word, the Bible, in front of us, whether it's a paper one or on our electronic device or just on the screen in front of us, that we can consider what you did, what Jesus did, what each and every person in this story did, and how we might learn from it today. So God, as always, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray that as Jesus said, forgive them, speaking of the soldiers that crucified him, that there's some application for us too. Because though they may have been the ones to nail him to the cross, it was our sin that made the reason that he had to die. So God, thank you for your love for us. Speak to us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Well, if you haven't turned already to Luke chapter 26, Luke chapter 26, excuse me, 23, verse 26, Luke chapter 23, verse 26, we continue our Harmony of the Gospels approach to studying Jesus' life and what we're calling following Jesus. And we either use Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John each week to tell the next Uh, vignette, if you will, in the story of Jesus based on which one has the most detail. And Luke, again, shares the most detail with us of this particular story. And you can read the parallel passages in Matthew 27 or Mark 15, even John 19 to see those. Your Bible may note that for you. But notice what it says in Luke 26. It says, as they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him to carry it behind Jesus. 
So they're taking Jesus to be crucified. Remember the scene that Jesus has had his multiple trials and he's been unjustly convicted. He's been now scourged and beaten and mocked by soldiers. And now they're taking him to crucify him. Verse 27, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when they will say, Blessed are the barren woman, the wombs who never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say, will, uh, they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things with the tree that it, uh, tree is green, what will they happen when it's dry? Now verse 32 says, Two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then they divided up his clothes by casting lots. We have these pictures in our mind. If you're using your imagination like I asked you to. And then this idea of perspective. I want us to consider who was on the road to the cross. Who was on the road to the cross? And the first person or persons that we encounter on the road to the cross I want to talk about today are the soldiers. They were doing their job. The soldiers doing their job. So that's your first blanks to fill out on your note sheet if you're taking notes. The soldiers, they were doing their job. Now, I don't know how it would go, and I couldn't find anything in study that said, what did you have to do to end up on crucifixion detail if you were a Roman soldier? It wasn't just something they did in Jerusalem. It wasn't just something they did to Jesus. It was something that they did around the Roman Empire as a means of punishment, and it was highly effective because they would post the folks that broke the law on the roadways in and out of town. So if you're coming into a town and you see somebody either dying or dead, you're thinking, I better follow the laws here. I might end up like that person. So this is what they did. But I don't know if it was right on the bottom of the barrel of the list of things you want to do as a Roman soldier, like next to latrine duty or next to kitchen duty is crucifixion duty. Or if maybe some guys asked for it because they were just twisted and mean and nasty. I don't know. But one way or the other, these soldiers are doing their job, and to them, it may be just another day. And Jesus may be just another criminal. As gruesome as it was, they're doing their job. Jesus, because he's so weak, can't carry the cross. And the soldiers, doing their job, impressed another man to duty, Simon of Cyrene, Scripture tells us. We'll talk about Simon in just a moment. But that was their job to get Jesus and the crossbar. It was the big part that goes across was what they would carry and generally would weigh up to 100 pounds. When Jesus couldn't do it, they grabbed the guy from the side to make him do it. And they led him to the place of crucifixion, place of the skull, Golgotha. And there they crucified him, Jesus With a criminal on his right, a criminal on his left. So, if we imagine ourselves in the place of those soldiers doing our jobs, most of us don't even want to think about that. Not that job. 
not that person, Jesus. What would be going through our minds? My easier for us to apply question is this one. And that's at work. How do I behave toward Jesus? So taking you back to your modern day and time, taking you to your place of employment, if you're a stay-at-home mom, that would be where you work, right? You work harder than anybody. At work, how do I behave toward Jesus? So far away from the idea of crucifixion, back to you, how do you behave towards Jesus? Is your daily relationship with Jesus one where you'd just as soon be ugly and nasty to him and beat him and put a cross on him and run him down the road? Or do you have a more loving, gracious, kind, respectful, honoring relationship with Jesus? Because some of us, Seem to have no problem being Christian when we're here. We put on our Sunday face. We say, I'm fine. How are you? And we go about our business. But we live lives of such duplicity, such hypocrisy, and living a lie. And people might wonder it when they meet you at church, but you know it within you. That at work, you don't behave like you behave at church. And you might make excuses about, well, I have to act a certain way to get by at work. Baloney. God's Word tells us how we live, and how we live should be consistent no matter the circumstance. There shouldn't have to be a different you at church than there is at work. You should be you filled with Jesus no matter the circumstance. So we talked for a moment about the soldiers. Let's move on to the second point on your outline. And that's the bystander who is pressed into action. The bystander who is pressed into action, you saw it there in verse 26, and that is Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. Now, Cyrene is modern-day Libya. If you think about a world map and you think, well, Libya is like right there in North Africa, and it's kind of Middle East, and, you know, Jerusalem's right there, and it's kind of Middle East, and it's the Mediterranean Ocean. I Googled how far it is from Tripoli, Libya, to Jerusalem. And it's 1,800 miles if you were to ride a car or something. I'm sure it's shorter if you took a boat across. But 1,800 miles. Imagine if you could walk uh, or ride a camel or whatever, 20 miles a day. Do the math. How long is that going to take you to get to Jerusalem? So Simon is a long way from home. And the idea is uh, that Simon was... Maybe a businessman in Jerusalem, but most likely was there for the Passover to worship. And so maybe he lived in Jerusalem and that was his home. And so it wasn't like a super long trek that he made. It was his new adopted home. Some of you are from places that are 1,800 miles away. And you live here now and it's your home. And so we might identify you as from that place, but you live here. So we don't know that was it just a one-time trip to worship or was Simon now a resident of Jerusalem? There is extra biblical evidence as well as in the book of Acts that there was a Cyrenian synagogue. So people from Cyrene that were Jews in Jerusalem. So he may have been a number of that people that lived there. But why was he coming in this time of day when they're leading Jesus out? It says he was coming in from the countryside. He wasn't coming in because he was going to work. That would be the wrong time of day. He was coming in most likely because he was a worshiper. The other things we know about Simon 
And it's in Matthew 27, 32 that he had two sons, Rufus and Alexander. But if you look elsewhere in Scripture, Rufus is named as a disciple, a leader in the church in Rome that Paul wrote the book of Romans to. It's like Romans 16, 31, I think. It says something about greeting Romans. And there's all indication to believe that Simon, because of what happened here, became a believer in Jesus. And that Simon then passed on his faith to his sons, Rufus and Alexander. And it may have even been that Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, and Luke may have depended on that, even knew Simon personally or knew his sons personally. So we don't have absolute positive evidence of all this, But it seems quite sure, and a whole lot of biblical commentators talk about it as possibilities. But at this day and time, Simon probably doesn't know Jesus. He's a bystander. He just happens to be coming into town, and here comes this mob, and he's like, oh, traffic jam. But it's not just any traffic jam. It's this terrible, gruesome scene with death. He looks like a man because he has been beaten to the point of death. The facts seem certain, however, that Simon, because of his encounter with Jesus, went from being a Jewish believer or a Jewish person way, changed his perspective. My question for you is how would that change me? If your parade comes by with on Highway 2 on your way to work or whatever road in Lincoln you go to work, and a parade comes by with some macabre scene and a law enforcement official grabs you out of the parade and carries, asks you to carry the crucifixion instrument or the instrument of capital punishment for somebody else that you are now forced to follow, though they are bleeding every step of the way and can hardly make it. How would that change you? I think that would do a number on you. First, most of us wouldn't want to do it. I don't want to carry that. I don't want to be near that guy. I just want to act like I didn't see this and go about my work. But they forced him into this. Can you imagine what it did to his mind that not only is this a crucifixion, but who is this being crucified and why? And how these scenes would be portrayed. And the blood that is now on him came from this man, the blood of the man that he's following. And Scripture says he followed Jesus. What does it do for you? What does it mean? Some of us flippantly use the phrase, it's my cross to bear. I would challenge you never to use that phrase flippantly again. That seems so disrespectful. I don't know what other words to use for it. I'm at a loss. But when you think about what Jesus did for us, find another phrase to use. Even when you talk about your relationship with Jesus and following him. Simon bore the cross for Jesus to Golgotha's hill. That Jesus might be crucified for you and I. The third group of people we encounter along the way are the mourners. And I put the mourners following their Lord. But it very well may have been that they weren't actual mourners of Jesus. But... Scripture or commentators are divided on this because there was, in that day and time, people that would mourn. It was part of the Jewish culture going back hundreds, if not thousands of years, that you would even pay professional mourners to come to the house to really weep and wail and make a big deal about your loved one that passed away. 
and uh, the more money you had, the more money, uh, mourners you'd you know, pay or uh, the more you'd expect out of them in their behavior. Now, to us, that seems totally disingenuous. I don't want a lot of people I don't know showing up crying tears that don't mean anything for me. I mean, gross. That's just weird. But this was their culture. So the folks following Jesus, as we come back to our scripture there, verse 27, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. These people very well have may have been these professional mourners, or it may have been that they weren't hired, we know that, by Jesus or any of his disciples, but they were just folks in general that had a good heart and maybe they didn't like the Roman Empire, maybe they grieved people in general. I don't know, but for whatever reason, they're with him. So it could be this type of professional mourners. It could be just folks that mourned because they had a reason to mourn and followed Jesus. Or it could be the third reason, Jesus' disciples, his followers. Or it could be some of all three. One way or the other, there is a throng of people, mostly women, behind Jesus. And it's interesting, so very interesting to consider about these mourners. But it asks, or I want to ask us to consider, what's my reaction to Jesus' sacrifice? That's your application question here. What is my reaction to Jesus' sacrifice? And it depends on what type of mourner they were, what their reaction would be, right? If they were a paid mourner, probably unlikely in this case, but they were just mourning just because. It's just, hey, it's another crucifixion. It's the Roman Empire killing another guy that's one of ours, and we're sad about this, and we're going to mourn. So maybe they don't have an intimate relationship with him. A lot of people treat Jesus like that today. I heard the story about Jesus. I guess the story of the Bible is true. We've heard about lots of other crucifixions from the Roman Empire. Too bad Jesus made a man and he got crucified. They're indifferent. But what about when you know Jesus? What about when you love Jesus? What's your reaction to his sacrifice? What he did for you? How do you respond to him? 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ died for our sin, the righteous for the unrighteous or the just for the unjust. Hebrews 9.22 says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Jesus had to die and he died for you. One of my new favorite scriptures is Galatians 1.14 and the New Living Translation. I like the way it says it. Listen to what it says. Galatians 1.14. Write that one down. It says, Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. When you hear a verse like that, when you consider what Jesus did for you, that he gave his life for our sins in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Does that not change your perspective? Does that not break you or humble you to who Jesus is and how he loves you? Let's get a fourth perspective here. And the fourth perspective is that of Jesus himself. So I asked you to consider a little bit what it would be like to be a soldier, what it would be like to be Simon, what it would be like to be one of these mourners. But Jesus, I don't think that would be easy for us to consider. But notice this Interesting soliloquy, if you will. Jesus, beaten near to death, can't even carry his own cross anymore, being driven to his crucifixion by a squad of Roman soldiers. 
turns to these women in particular that are mourning him. And he says of them, daughters in Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your nurse. He's saying, blessed are the barren women. He says, the time's coming. The wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nurse. He's saying, blessed are those of you that aren't going to have children or won't have children because things are going to be so bad, you wouldn't want your children to go through it. No mama wants their children to go through pain. He's saying that to these ladies. Then this interesting thing, they will say to us, let the mountains fall on us and let the mountains cover us. This is quoting Hosea in an apocalyptic scripture. He's saying things are going to be so bad, you'd rather have mountains and hills fall on you than go through the judgment and trials and tribulation. Then there's this very interesting saying in verse 31, for if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Jesus is making, if you will, an a fortiori argument. But the riddle of it here makes it a little hard to understand. But basically what he's saying, if God won't spare his own son, me, the green stick, how much worse is it going to be for you who have lived in sin, knowing God's goodness all these years when God unleashes his wrath on you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is giving them a warning, a pronouncement of doom and judgment. That question there for that point about uh, Jesus' warning of repentance is, why does this matter to me? Why does it matter to you that Jesus said this kind of hard to understand thing about mountains falling on people, babies not being able to nurse from their mom, and green stick and dry wood? Well, it matters because Jesus is saying to us, judgment is coming. And that judgment has still not come to our earth as in the end times and as the return of Christ, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you haven't trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, You'll be damned to eternity in hell. Jesus warns us of what's to come, even in this terrible circumstance that he's in. Is it not crazy to you that he's beaten near to death already? And even with this riddle-like warning, He's calling us to repentance. What love Jesus has for us. What love that in his pain and in his agony, he's still thinking about us. He was thinking about the daughters of Jerusalem mourning for him there. He's thinking about those of us that would read it in the centuries and uh, uh, years past. He's thinking about us. That's why this matters. That God loved us. And Jesus loves us and he gave himself for us. Let's come and look at a fifth, not person, but persons. And that's the fifth one, the criminals paying the price. We hear them referred to in scripture as criminals or thieves. I don't know what they stole, but to be crucified for what you stole, pretty bad. But the Romans were known for swift and harsh punishment. Verse 32, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. There's not much more we can say about that other than they did the crime and they weren't going to have to do any time. They were going to pay with their life. 
The question for us to ask there is, when have I deserved punishment? What is it that you have done that would deserve some sort of punishment, not the death penalty? I don't think any of us have done that. That we deserved the punishment we were going to receive. These men, whether they agreed with it or not, we would assume were guilty. We know they might not have been. We know they might have been framed, but we would assume so. And they're going to pay the price. They were going to receive the punishment, no matter how severe it may have seemed, for the crimes they committed. Put yourself in the mind of that criminal And it may not be that you've ever had to deal with the law and certainly never had to look at capital punishment, but the consequences for something you had done when you were a child with your parents and being punished or some privilege being removed. The consequences for something you had done as a teenager or a young adult when you violated a rule in the classroom or on a sports team that you played. The consequences for something you had done as an adult that may have uh, been some sort of censure or some sort of warning at work or maybe even getting fired. All of us have had to pay the price. All of us have deserved a punishment at some point in time. These men did. Let's come to our sixth and final point. That's in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. The Greek syntax indicates he's talking specifically about the Roman soldiers. For they don't know what they're doing. That's where I get the point of they're doing their job. Whether it was we approve of it or however gruesome it was, they were doing their job. And even the dividing up his clothes by casting lots, that was something that was customary to them, even though we think it's terrible and mean and wicked. But look at what your point says there. Your sixth point is that Jesus praying for the forgiveness of all. I don't think it's too far a stretch to say that even though Jesus in that instance is speaking specifically of the Roman soldiers that crucified him, that we can apply this idea to all of us. Because as I prayed earlier, it was our sin that led to the need for Jesus to be crucified. And so when he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Yeah, sometimes we don't know what we do and we commit sin. Other times we absolutely positively know what we do and we're sinning. Your question of application there is also by means of conclusion. How have I responded to Jesus? Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. How have you responded to Jesus? Have you believed? What God's word says is true? Have you trusted that Jesus can save you eternally from your sins? And have you placed your faith in him? If you haven't done that already, you can do it today. Even though you may have more questions than you have answers, you have faith and you know in your heart that God loves you. And if you'll ask him to save you, he'll do it. Let's pray. God, our Father, we sang that song together earlier about your 
reckless love. And we sang over and over again that there's no shadow you won't light up. The light of your Holy Spirit will shine in any sinfulness and anything we'd just as soon hide and not others know. We sang there's no mountain you won't climb up. And here we see Jesus going up this hill of Golgotha for us. No mountain you won't climb up means there's nothing too big that you won't do for us. And that you're coming after us because you love us. There's no wall you won't kick down. No sinfulness, no habit, no barrier or boundary we believe we have in our life that you can't get through because we don't truly believe you're God. And we even sang, there's no lie you won't tear down. We're pretty good at deceiving ourselves, God, and we need to confess that to you. And none of those things will keep you from coming after us because you love us. And the story of Jesus and his love and his road to the cross and his death on the cross reminds us of how much you love us, God. So as we've tried to use our imagination, as we've tried to put ourselves in the place of these different people, even of our Lord, ourselves. But then each time we've asked a question of ourselves, God, I pray that you've taught us. I pray that we've heard from you. But I also pray, God, that if there's anyone here who's never trusted Christ as their Savior, they'd do that today. And I pray for those of us that are believers in Jesus, that we've allowed our own sinfulness and the lies of the evil one to sway us from following Jesus in a loving relationship that we'd confess that today. We'd repent and turn from those things. And God, if there's any of us today that maybe we need to commit ourselves to serve you in some way or commit ourselves to membership of this church, that we do that today. May we be humble and obedient before you, God, we pray. Amen.